0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down the health tech news so you don't have to. Today, I'm delighted to say that I've got Hugh from the SOMEX team and Dr. Dom Pimenta from Tortoise. So we have got loads of permission today to talk yet again about generative AI, but this time with someone who knows what they're doing and what they're talking about. So Dom, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Uh, How are you doing, sir?
1: Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me back. I think a bit overdue for my second therapy session, so this
0: is great. Absolutely. Yes, you have been on uh, the Alta podcast previously, but yeah, this time we're going to talk about some news, which is exciting. Dom, for the listeners here, mate, what, uh, what, does, what do you do? What does Tortoise do? And uh, yeah, give us a bit of context so that we can uh, make sure that listeners are aware. You know what you're talking about for generative AI.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, that might not after this blur, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> I'm uh, uh, Don Pimenta, I'm a physician by background, still practicing, Uh, was a cardiologist for about 10 years, switched over about, I did COVID-ITU about three years ago Into Twitch, became a pharmaceutical physician, worked on regulatory industries, gene editing, super interesting stuff, but ended up drifting into health tech as part of that role, ran digital trials, learned to code, learned to machine learning, Um, actually kind of thought that health tech was probably more impactful for me as an individual. And then founded a company last year from the Accelerator Entrepreneur First with my co-founder, Chris Tan, who actually does know what he's talking about. He is a machine learning engineer, and I just hang around him and steal everything <laughs> that, his, that he says when I come on these things. And we founded a company called Tortoise with the idea that essentially AI human co-working is probably the most logical, incredible future of healthcare. Um, and we've been building a co-pilot that sort of works alongside, or digital worker, I think is the term we're now using, Works alongside uh, a physician. Initially, we're just focusing on the low-hanging fruit, so digital work, so summarization, documentation, ordering tests, doing bits and bobs like that. Some clever deep tech that controls the computer, allows us to sort of do a lot more with this type of technology than improve as possible. We're in a bunch of hostels uh, in the UK, piloting and very carefully uh, researching uh, the Gen AI aspect of that, and then figuring out how to do all the bonkers stuff, which is how do you do clinical safety? on a gen AI model, how do you take it through, you know, clinical frameworks that were built for, you know, software that's more like Pong, uh, (laughs) try and bring a transformer model into that architecture and still try to play the same rigor. So that's what we've been doing
0: for the last year. And yeah, it's going pretty well. Awesome. Glad to have you on, mate. And I think not least because whenever we talk about generative AI, there, there are so many kind of common caveats that people always put on it or common things that people say like... Yeah, but it's not regulated. Yeah, but this. Yeah, but that. Yeah, but the other. Whereas you're actually doing this. um, Because Hugh, you saw Dom present, which is why he's on today, actually, because he's been collared after this uh, presentation. But yeah, Dom, you're in, um, was it Great Ormond Street? We've been working with Great Ormond Street now for, uh, and they've been great partners, actually. They're a really great
1: team. Um, A massive shout out to Shankar Shradaran, who's the CCO there, and one of my best mates now uh, in this space. Because... I think it takes a lot to want to take this kind of leap and they're super keen to massively improve um, clinician time, unlock the efficiency of their clinicians, but they're also really sensible people. Um, And what we've been doing together is figuring out how do you take what we all agree is transformative technology through a system that's very carefully tested for safety, for rigor, for accuracy, how do you make sure it works for different accents there's an equity and bias piece there as well. And what's been really interesting to observe is like we've been developing product and they've been developing, uh, you know, we presented uh, their sort of policies around AI, which they sort of developed in tandem. So they've got a set of principles that um, AI should never do any harm, equity and confidentiality and always have a human in the loop, which is a very sensible set of principles that's hard to argue with. And then they delineated that from um, the Hippocratic Oath, actually, Felina. And then they've also taken a set of principles of AI around that. And actually, that's created a really good framework for us then to copy another uh, framework, which is from Pharma, to take the deployment of our very basic, well, not very basic, slag off my own product there, (laughs) (laughs) Um, to to the, the, the functionality of the AI that we have, right? So currently, all we're allowing it to do, just from a compliance perspective, is to transcribe a consultation and generate your notes and letters. And that's actually what we were trialing very carefully. We did a phase one, where we built in a sandbox, and the results that we presented this week were the phase two study. So our phase two study was uh, real clinicians from Great Women Street Hospital using our scribe functionality before and after, so a, a really good control study in 48 simulated patients. So no downward risk, but we can measure ROI in a very uh, discrete way, and then we'll actually use that to do our next study, which is going to be real world and, and next starting next month. And the results were, you know, as we presented, right? So very interestingly, 25% less time required to see a patient, but no difference in the amount of time spent with the patient. Mm-hmm. So the patient experience is preserved. The clinician gets three minutes back. And it's, 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 it's logical, right? Because most of the busy work is done uh, in parallel by the AI and actually not in series as it is today. The really interesting insight was in the short time period that we had for these, we had 20 minutes allotted the quality was double with the AI of the letters and the notes. And we used a validated framework again called SAIL to like assess that. And that was very interesting because it was consistent. The AI output is the same. We also started to see some behaviors that we hadn't really expected. And for example, if you give a template of a note and it asks for allergies, you will then go and ask for allergies because you're reminded by the AI, even unconsciously, that actually that's an important part of the consultation. So there's a lot of like really discrete things that came out of that which are really, really interesting. And then we also measured the physician and clinician experience. So physician experience was great. 100% of people said they weren't distracted by the computer. They could spend their full time with the patient. And I think that's a really important statement because of burnout. So the classic cause of burnout is moral injury. Definition of moral injury is when you feel that you can do more, but you're obstructed from doing that, and then you observe harm. So we all, I mean, that's the classic thing of doctors, right? You all think that if I just had this kit or this stupid system didn't work like it does, or like I wasn't obstructed by these four other patients, but that's the bit that you can't really, you know, that's the bit that burns doctors out when they're doing too much and they're overloaded. So that was a really interesting, and also alongside we also measured cognitive load and that was well reduced because you're not doing anything else, right? You're just using the AI to talk to the patient. And what was super interesting was patients noticed, right? They paid, you know, 100% of patients said the doctor spent had their full attention on me. And even just from a patient perspective, that's, you know, if we could just do that, like double the experience of the patients without any of the other cost savings or time savings, I think it's pretty good. So that's what we're doing at the moment. We're about to move to a real-world study with them um, in the next month and then potentially roll that out a bit further to a few other sites. And we've now got all our badges, which has been the other major... Uh, sort of learning for us is, and anyone actually, I would recommend in this space who's trying to bring new technology, like genuinely new technology, into healthcare, is find a great partner like we have with Great Woman Street, and then work through all of the the real world compliance requirements, the frameworks, and also actually all of the worries that like, literally that like, goes to the people in the hospital. say, what are you worried about? Or what are you concerned about? Is it cyber security? Is it accuracy? or what are the edge cases? And then use that to build the evidence to say that this is safe, and don't run away from it because once you've crossed that bridge, the next hospital is going to ask the same questions, and you'll have all the answers. So you might spend six months here, but you might spend six weeks, optimistically, with the next hospital, right? With with your stack of evidence, and you know that will only iterate. And I think it's the same thing with with pharma. So you do phase one, phase two, phase three, and then maybe phase four. And phase four, we're looking to to potentially do something a bit multi-site, and there's a lot of appetite, I think, for people to do. To use this technology, but in the right way, and I was making the point actually yesterday. This country is a great place to do that. I know people, including myself, sometimes say you know healthcare is a terrible customer, and NHS can be a terrible customer. But actually, if you think about it, you know when it all works together, and we saw this during COVID. When the time is right and there's momentum, actually the NHS is pretty phenomenal. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I was working COVID. Uh, ITU and there was and a friend of mine was also working at Nor. and there was a clock on the wall of her anesthetic room. Did I tell you the story?
0: No, don't remember it. Right.
1: So there's a clock on the wall of her anesthetic and she was trying to move it for three years before COVID. All she wanted to do was put the clock on the other side so she could look at it while she was intubating and figure out how long the patient, you know, wasn't mm. oxygenated. One wall to the other. That's all I had to do. Unscrew, screw. Obviously, you know, it stayed, whatever. Anyway, funnily enough, that same room and all of those walls were knocked down during COVID to build a six bed recess unit in the same area in four days. Yeah. So it's like,
0: it's, it's, it's just political will and momentum. Yeah. And I think the same thing applies to this technology. So, yeah. I think that's, that's such a wonderful story with so many lessons in adoption. So we talk about adoption all the time, right? And, and this is one of the common criticisms of generative AI is like, yeah, but it's not going to get adopted, is it? It's not going to get adopted. For, the, for all these reasons, it's not going to get adopted. It's There's regulation, it's never going to be a medical device, it's never going to be this, it's never going to be that. I think what you've just explained is that, well, first of all, Clearly, it doesn't have to be a lot of those things in order to provide a hell of a lot of value for clinicians. When we think about the actual application of it, but the thing that I really liked, you started off by saying you started by talking about a set of frameworks and principles that Great Ormond Street had and put in place around AI broadly, which gets them on board with AI broadly, and then the how those principles relate to frameworks that they put in place with you about this specific technology. And in order to do that, you look at the compliance and regulatory requirements and information governance requirements of the hospital. But there's a bit I love. You also just go around to human beings and just ask them what they're worried about. Just ask them what they're <laughs> worried about. I just love how practical yeah. that is. I mean, I take no credit for that. That's been, you know... The of course, system. man. But like, everyone's, everyone's part of a team that does these things. But like, I just love how practical that is because those human beings are who represents the organizational worries or the regulatory worries or the all the worries will eventually come down to somebody responsible and by just building relationships and you you talked about you know get a great partner as a bit of a, a bit of advice there for people it's very difficult with that kind of chicken and egg between you know evidence and pilot or evidence and contract evidence and deal basically like what comes first the the pilot or the evidence, because to get a pilot, you need evidence for evidence, you need a, a pilot. Like, where do you break that cycle? Well, actually, you break that cycle by building a relationship with people and actually getting trust. And then once you get trust, you can figure out the detail of how to actually start and break into that cycle by building relationship with a with a local site. And I think it's just a really nice explanation of, do you know what? Yeah, I'm dealing with brand new technology that's really cool and interesting and hyped, But, uh, but what, you know, yes, there's hype, but actually in the background, I'm actually working really hard with human beings to actually just get this done. And there's just a real lesson in what it means to be an actual entrepreneur there. I think (laughs) it's it's the grind, right? The grind, but it is, but this is the thing like behind everybody that's hyping this stuff up and saying that it's pie in the sky and like, oh, there's going to be these amazing things one day. And in 10 years, it's going to be amazing for every bit of that that's happening. There's someone like yourself that's just diligently and relatively quietly just getting things done on the ground floor, which is incredibly exciting that this is actually, there are actually people doing this. Um, yeah, it's exciting. But real world is, is the interesting thing as well, like real world evidence coming next. First time in my life
2: I've been called relatively quiet, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, what I what I am keen to know is what were people worried about?
1: It's the I mean, it's the same things, right? So that if you use ChatGPT incorrectly, and I can give you the technical answer why to answer questions, you know, that are important or critical, you'll realise that occasionally it, um, what we call, hallucinates, or actually the literature is now saying confabulates is probably more accurate, where it produces an answer that looks confident, you know, there's a lawyer in the US or wherever that's just recently been disbarred for believing chat GPT's like references to real cases. But you have to understand that that's not how generative AI technology works. It produces a simulacrum of what it thinks the right answer should look like. Like that's the actual reward function. And quite often that is actually factually correct, but also quite often, well, not quite often at all, depending on the new models, so, one of the big things is about when you're in this space and you're taking, uh, actually very important data. So, hallucinations. So, how do you eliminate hallucinations? That's the big part of you know, the work that we've been doing. And we generated a big piece of evidence and I actually have now built an internal team, an internal platform, and, and a bunch of clinicians who are actively working on this problem, measuring hallucinations, validating them, but also like actually just creating the taxonomy because it doesn't exist. For, for the clinical space, what is mm-hmm. a clinical hallucination and I could literally talk and I won't don't worry for hours about uh, you know the clinical evaluation. So clinical evaluation was a big a big worry. I think also about equity so edge cases so when you're using speech text AI does it work with accents? Um, you know, is there bias in the model, which is actually the wrong question to ask about this type of technology. And I kind of explained why, because, you know, if you're talking about bias, it's actually statistical and you're talking about a sort of how far from the mean you are. But when you're talking about generative technology that like there isn't a right answer. So therefore, that type of bias doesn't really exist. But when you're talking about, you know, can if you're having a, a consultation, say, in the future and like this is the norm. But the person has a very strong accent or you know can't detect the the voice do they then get a poor patient experience because um because of where they're from because of the technology so that's an interesting use case but i would actually argue interestingly while we're on the topic that ai unlocks the opposite so one of the biggest problems that we've already had and this is where a lot of the discussion about how to bring AI in safely. It's like, well, just compare it to what we're doing today. So if you go into hospitals today and you don't speak the native language, and that's pretty true anywhere in the mm-hmm, world, mm-hmm. your chance of having a poor outcome is really high. Whereas actually all of the models oh, that we yeah. use work in like 100 languages, right? So in theory, and we haven't tested this yet, and we, but we absolutely will, this could unlock like, is language solved, right? For healthcare. Can you imagine that like you go into hospitals no matter what language you speak? And you don't have those poor you know obstetric outcomes or whatever. so there's like there's a whole bunch of stuff and it's like just talking people through it and how the technology works and then letting them get comfortable and 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 safely playing with it and then testing it and that's that's kind of why we've done this phase structure in the first place is to like collect all the worries, test them so in that report actually that we'll probably publish at some point there's a whole addendum of like accents accents was a really fun one to test because we had to use. AI to generate accents to then test accents, which was really fun. Um, I'll talk to you about that forever. But anyway, the point really is to sort of go through each of these worries. And I think it's really interesting because me as a clinician, I would, and hand on heart, you know, it doesn't really mean much, I suppose it is my company, but I would generally use this technology because I've built a system that I trust for safety for myself and I can test and check for myself as a physician. And then it will build, you know, who else is going to join me on this journey? And then we keep going. And interesting, the market now, you know, you've got Nabla, you've got Nuance. This could segue maybe into some of your other news stories. But the, it, this is becoming more and more established in the market at the same time. So actually it's, you know, it's moving in the same direction universally. And that also brings people's worries down when they just see it and use it and get it comfortable. Just like with anything, just like with the internet, I guess. It must have been like this 20 years ago, 30 years ago
0: yes so dom saying that there's a couple of uh couple of generative IO stories in health tech pigeon this week um the first one Someone called Vrinda Kurjakar, a consultant specialising in AI machine learning, has said. that and the headline is paraphrasing slightly, but I mean it's not far from the truth. The generative AI can be applied to nearly every healthcare use case you can think of.
2: Interesting. Uh, yes, but I suppose that it just guess limits us by our imagination. <laughs> yeah, let's, <laughs> yeah, let's just
1: let's just give it a go. I, I when I said that I was like, let's just try this. Okay, so. And to be honest, I completely agree, and I can explain why. But this is not This would be an interesting like idea. So let's just think of something really random. Uh, what's super random? Okay, neonatal nutrition calculations that's a really interesting one actually because like trying to calculate nutrition for babies is actually really difficult especially when they're in like in NICU and stuff didn't you do didn't you do NICU is that something that I pulled that out of my
0: head I did NICU yeah I did I did it I, I was really concerned that you were going to start asking me about the equation <laughs> and whether or not we were going to test it against what chat thought it was and then you're going yeah. to be like and James is that correct yes yeah, so um, uh, is that the uh, correct daily weight
1: get this wrong and it's very serious so exactly. So one of the big you know issues there is you said there's a huge corpus of data which you need to apply to your patients. Generative AI plus you know retrieval augmentation or or VDB to actually pull guidelines mm. and have natural language questions. So you as a trainee doc can go, okay, what is the nutrition guideline here? Great use case, solved. Um I won't keep going because this isn't a particularly fruitful thread.
0: But he but here you go. Here's what's it here's an interesting question though. So where do you sit on Let me just say the word diagnosis and treatment. So let's talk about those two things, right? Mm. Like a load of symptoms go in, a diagnosis pops out. That's one. And let's just put CBT at text based CBT or other talking therapies that turn into text therapies via large language models. These are commonly talked about things that are like, ah, I've got you. You can't use it. You can't use it for these things. And you probably won't for 50 years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, because of regulators and this and that and the other. So, I'm interested in your thoughts on that argument.
1: Yeah, for sure. So number one, I would say the large language model is like a car engine. Do not sit on your car engine. It won't get you anywhere and it will burn your bum. (laughs) It's a great analogy, right? Yeah. Stick that in your health tech podcast. Love it. But what I mean by (laughs) that is like the power is there, right? For these technologies, for diagnosis and treatment, super high risk, super important that you have power, but you have to build the car. You have to build the brakes and the steering and the whatever else is in there, the seats, you know, and that's the guardrails and the systems that go in and out, controlling the input and the output. So for diagnosis, for example, um, I'll give you a really good example of this. I gave GPT-4 the physician's associate exam. I gave it the 20 multiple choice questions without the choices. In fact, it scored a hundred percent and then it corrected the exam. So like it's it's, (laughs) technically this is already feasible and actually no but but there's a serious point right if you have and we had some high profile stories about physicians associates making big diagnostic errors which is actually not how they should be deployed at Mm. all we can get all into that but the fact that there's clinical knowledge out there that's encoded that's very high quality and freely available and ChatGPT is an app for god's sake like actually this kind Mm. of stuff is very possible but who takes responsibility who takes liability how do you Mm. evidence base that I think that's like a big gap for a company that solves that and builds that guardrail system. And people are doing that with all sorts of other systems, knowledge graphs and vector databases. But it has to be a medical device because it can cause harm. And it has to be applied thoughtfully in the right place. And actually, I think the best place you could start by applying it is giving it back to physicians. Like you're already a diagnostic machine. Let's just make you a little bit better. As opposed to, let's just let the patients diagnose themselves and just see what happens, which kind of seems to be what we've done Mm -hmm. or tried to do with health tech up until this point. So even like upskilling physicians associates or, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, raising the bar of AI in healthcare. I think that's the wrong idea. We should try to raise the floor. Um, You know, if you see somebody who's not trained to deal with your condition, what tools can we give you that might make your management a bit safer, a bit easier. Again, you have to take it through a framework and prove that and everything you have to do improve. And the same thing with the treatment. And there are companies already actually um, shout out to, Limbic AI, who's an entrepreneur first company um, who does mm-hmm. do generative AI based uh, text. And that large language model analogy of building the car is exactly what they've done. I don't actually know what their core driver is. There's another form of AI, but it's a couple of different systems which are regulatory approved. And I think they've got class one or maybe even class two now, medical device certification already for that exact use case, therapy wow, derived awesome. from. So it, it's happening. And it's not happening in 50 years, it's happening right now. And I think it's for us as physicians Mm. to A, understand technology and B, how do we evaluate it? And then C, be like, again, what are we doing as humans? What is my diagnostic error? No, I don't know. But if you look at studies in the literature of how often doctors agree with themselves, the cap is like 60%. Like we're terrible. We're not even consistent. We're not even consistently wrong. So it's doable. I ain't doing it. But people are. And as long as they're doing it the right way. I think it's I think it's a good idea. I think it's a probably a necessary idea it depends.
0: Rolling into our next story then, uh relate very related uh, a new 100 million pound fund to capitalize on AI's game changing potential in life sciences and healthcare. It's slightly slightly disconcerting that A gov.uk website is using phrases phrases like game-changing potential, which sounds a bit too colloquial and like buying into a bit of hype potentially. I don't know. But a new mission has been announced by Rishi Sunak that will accelerate the use of AI in life sciences to tackle the biggest health challenges of our generation. Um, They've really leaned into this press release, Hugh, if you've had a read of this.
2: They really have. And I mean, having done my fair share of uh, press releases that went out on gov.uk, I can tell you someone in policy was saying, nope, can't say that. Can't say that. (laughs) Um, But this one's, one's, you know, a nice, I I mean, this, I say it's nice. I'm probably um, amping it up a bit. It's the latest in a series of. Government funding announcements for health, um, life sciences, care, and investment in technology, which is all very nice to have, and it's a nice round hundred million coming off the back of. I don't know if anyone's noticed. There's a small little like get together of sort of world oh, leaders yes. and experts going on this week. Oh, yes. uh, what? And if you have missed it, you might <laughs> Are be wondering. Get rock, invited? Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think it was Elon Musk and friends. Other than that, I uh, thought I was but, his yeah, friend. <laughs> We're That's keeping it. <laughs> I mean, top line, hundred million for essentially accelerating the use of AI in life sciences, uh, and to accelerate uh, curing disease, mental health. uh, I think we mentioned cancer, mental health, Parkinson's, dementia. Um, So it's it's not a broad fund or anything. You know, it it sounds like it's really focused on on what it wants to do and to whom it's going to go for. So. probably detecting the slight note of sarcasm in my voice. (laughs) At this point, I'm slightly wondering whether at the beginning of the year government just says, okay, we've got this much to give in terms of money to life sciences and technology investment. Uh, That doesn't sound like a lot, but we'll still split it over 48 different announcements. Um, So I think... This is this is interesting only in so far as it's it show it does show commitment. I think it's a bit of a PR announcement to support um, the summit this week. Uh, I think, yeah, it's a it's a PR announcement to support the summit, basically. But it does show that government is, uh, you know, is taking this seriously and putting putting investment in. Um, Key things off the top of it: timelines. Uh, looking at next eighteen months in where we want to test and trial new technologies. With over the next five years, looking to develop world-class infrastructure. Hundred million over five years could be a bit of a question. Um, and frankly, isn't isn't a huge amount given the kind of breadth of the challenges it's taken on. There's also one, you know, small caveat in all of it is that none of it's subject, none of it's uh, actually received an approved business case yet. So you know, I think we will need to check back in in 18 months and just say, did this money actually get approved and spent?
0: It says here, the government will invite proposals bringing together academia, industry, and clinicians to develop innovative solutions. The funding will target opportunities to deploy in clinical settings and improve outcomes. It's vague, isn't it? They're, they've They're definitely kind of hedging their bets somewhat with what this actually goes towards. Oh, that was a shout out to Barbara Windsor, or Dame Barbara Windsor, I should say, mm-hmm. in here and her dementia mission, which is quite nice. But yeah, bringing together academia industry and clinicians. Um, Dom, that's essentially what startups do anyway, isn't it? Like, isn't that what you kind of have to do in order to get uh, yeah, and adoption and deployment? Sure.
1: That's how you that's how you do it. I mean, I looked at this and I thought, this is great, obviously, because I'm in the industry. But I did think the the focus is like the antithesis of what, what we think actually AI, at least to start with, should be doing. So drug discovery is really interesting. In theory, it's great. But let's play a game of which drugs have been discovered through AI. Anyone? Anyone? No, none. The answer is none. And actually, it's because it's really hard, most of the compounds that you find don't actually ever make it to the clinic because it turns out they're toxic for some other reason that wasn't in the model, blah, blah, blah. So actually, that 100 million is, you know, if you, if you put it into that pot where 99.9% of that will fail, then you've basically lost all that money. And the other problem I find with drug discovery is like one of the bigger problems we have is half of all drugs are not taken by the patient. So the $2 trillion pharma industry, $1 trillion every year goes in the bin, literally in the bin. So, you know, a $100 million AI fund to build something that makes patients take their drugs would be so much more impactful in terms of money. You know, you could literally like, you could, because at least like, you know, if the industry, you know, if these medicines actually work and people actually take the medicines, then that's an equation. So it's always interesting to me to think like, you know, the money's over here and we're going to put it for the press release, but how much of it is going to be impactfully. And the, the business case thing, I actually think is quite a good idea. Like it should make a business case where there's always impact. And there's been a few, you know, there's been quite a few uh, like AI companies that have done evidence-based to go back to my earlier point and, and shown that their ROI, that they are a good safe pair of hands. But I think, you know, we're constantly, especially in health tech, constantly being like, look at this massive new shiny thing, it's going to revolutionise everything, says the AI co-founder. And actually the the actual application of it is just speculative and then the money's gone and then everyone's like, oh well, didn't work, what's the next new thing? And it's just, it seems wasteful so hopefully this, you know, this fund will be a bit more
2: thoughtfully applied, I think it's my two cents. You have come on this podcast to just put yourself out of the job door, <laughs> it feels like <laughs> clinicians do listen. <laughs>
1: yeah exactly just, just just, do something simple you know just take medicines it's all good you'll be a build a great company I've, I've given three great ideas out already I've got
0: loads more wonder how many votes that gets them though Dom like we've got a hundred million fund <laughs> so that you do what you're told it's not it's not yeah. it's not a partic- particularly uh, savvy message politically is it I don't think but yes at
2: least it's evidence based the libertarians will be out in force <laughs>
0: Our next story today, uh, this is from TechCrunch. So a group behind Stable Diffusion wants to open source emotion-detecting AI. So Dom, you've been involved in emotion AI. What is emotion AI, emotion-detecting AI? And if it wasn't open source before, why is it a good idea or not that it's gonna be open source now? Oh, second question, super interesting, don't know. But first
1: question, Emotion detection AI is essentially like how do I know you're sad? How do I know you're tired, right? I look at your face, there's a certain furrow of your brow, you've got maybe some crinkles, maybe there's tears coming out of your eyes. So there's a visual cue. And then I've got your voice, so like your voice might falter and this all getting a bit poetic now, and it might crack a little bit. And then I so there's a detection of various inputs from voice and face. And actually, we have so much data from like a corpus of nearly 100 years of cinema, more than anything else, of emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So you can feed a computer vision model and you can start to detect some of what we call biomarkers within the voice data and within the visual data. And we can say, OK, this person's happy, this person's sad, this person's tired. I think voice is fascinating, actually, as a separate subject, just for like loads of other conditions. And we can talk about that all day. Specifically for emotion, then, basically, this, this technology is mostly, in my experience, being used in spaces like marketing. So you film people watching your thing, and you're like, are they happy? Are they sad? How happy are, they? How, sad are they? How sad are they? And there's a lot of other use cases in that space. We did a bit of research um, to figure out from the voice data, actually, if doctors can. Um, and we haven't published anything yet because it's pretty uh, nascent. But the idea is, can we detect if a doctor is under cognitive load, if they're stressed, if they're tired? I had a boss once that said, unless the cardiac arrest bell is going, as in somebody's literally arresting you to jump on their chest and you're tired or you're hungry, have a rest or have a snack and then do whatever the next thing is. And that was like Mm -hmm. one of the best pieces of advice I ever received because like, you know, clerking your fifth Mm -hmm. patient hungry or waiting 10 minutes and having a sandwich and then doing it, you know, night and day. And just like having a you know, in an AI that could sit next to you and monitor your emotion. Now, whether you should open source this technology is super interesting because actually there's really big concerns in the regulatory space about profiling, using AI to automate, to track people. And tracking emotion is actually part of that. Tracking voice, tracking face data. And obviously all these models will rely on voice and face data. How you, you know, express certain emotions could easily be a way to identify you. And certainly voice biomarkers definitely is. So when you start open sourcing it, then you get into some real weird security concerns. I don't really have any strong views on either way. I'm just saying it's a bit of a minefield. Um, and it's interesting from us in healthcare because we don't really talk about emotion enough and monitoring it and having an AI that can monitor it would be really quite interesting. But actually from a you know compliance and security framework, it's pretty high risk. So it'd be interesting to see you know what the first use cases are if they actually do open source this. Um, and this is the stable diffusion getting sued as well, so maybe this is all a bit of a distraction from that. But anyway,
0: we'll see. <laughs> so, Dom, having having worked in this space in healthcare, there's obviously a lot of places where this can be used: detection of depression, anxiety, or indeed many mental health conditions. I imagine there's a predictive element to sort of, to certain, perhaps like anatomical things like head and neck cancers or i imagine there's quite a few use cases along along various different lines are you aware of anywhere where this is particularly ahead or behind in healthcare at the minute are you are you aware of any use cases where this is active and useful
1: mm, i mean not not specifically emotion i mean mental health there's a couple of companies um friend of mine, uh, Edward Wong, is just founding a company now to try to do analysis of voice for psychosis detection. And that's really interesting, actually, because that is a problem, like trying to predict recurrence of psychosis, who to admit, when to admit them, you know, psych budgets everywhere on their knees, like it's, it's, it's a real problem. And if you could, you know, create a machine learning algorithm from the voice, which would detect that and actually combine that with some semantics of the actual words, like because psychosis is partly voice and it's also partly the actual language as well. And that's I I think that's a very Mm. credible. I mean, my general rule of thumb here is if a human can do it, then it's probably something that an AI can probably do better. And Mm. if a human can't do it, then we should probably think carefully if the AI can do it. I mean, there are use cases where there were. I do like voice for lots of other conditions though. Um, So there's a company that does heart failure detection of voice. That makes a lot of sense because you have, you know, slightly... Well, it makes loads of sense, right? So you have edema sitting around in your body. Yeah, it's course. slightly on your vocal cords. Yeah. You can detect it. They may have different resonance. What's that thing? But What's it called? Bronchophony or something? The thing where you uh, can feel the fluid. You know, there's lots of like really mm-hmm. old Victorian things which are now coming back into fashion through AI. I think that's great. So heart wow. failure, again, like let's be serious. Just jump on the scales and measure their weights. is still the gold standard. But biomarkers of voice why not let's do it and again voice is really deployable distributable so it's cool i think there's something about diabetes in the news this week as well that also makes a lot of sense i mm-hmm. uh, haven't looked at the data for that so voice is fascinating from a, a machine learning ai perspective and i think we will actually we'll potentially will be useful but again evidence clinical workflow is it better than human baseline
0: etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and going back going back to emotion now as well i'm just trying to think like Is there a, there must be a huge like labeling issue there because, as you say, like if an AI can do it, they could do it better than a human. But ultimately, are we restricted by the fact that ultimately a human is labeled? Is that face angry, sad, et cetera, et cetera, and to what degree? So, predicting emotion based on that, I mean, difficult, right? Surely or not? Yeah,
1: uh,
0: I actually don't know. So,
1: I'm just going to say, I don't know. So I actually spoke to, um, I went and listened to one of the founding engineers at Inflection speak, you know, the personal assistant oh, guy. Because yeah. one of the things that we were really interested in, um, trying to do a similar analogous thing of like, what is good with generative AI for a mm. specific use case? And this is like a slightly different use case, for what is good for emotion detection? It's actually what they did at Inflection. It was like, "What is good?" They just had a metric. They just got a hundred people to look at each output of the chatbot, and this was just a chatbot as a personal assistant. So they're just trying to make it a bit more colloquial and conversational, which is extremely like gray area to try to hit. And they just said something like, "Is it sensible? Is it accurate? And is it interesting?" And if it hit all those things, they went yes. And so they fed in the human subjective element in a quantitative way, and that became the way that. And then they just kept trying to push that metric. You know percentage of responses that are accurate and i imagine you'd probably do the same thing you just get a bunch of people to look at the same face mm-hmm. and see if they agreed And percentage of agreement over time would then make the model you know that's how you get the human mm-hmm. into and that's actually how you know chat gpt is so good there's so much human feedback in it, and it's just it would be, i imagine it would be the same thing uh with this um but yeah i, I actually have no idea i mean you could probably even do something like nice read the transcripts of movies and look at people's faces and then just work out should they be
2: happy or sad and then i mean there's lots of other ways that you can maybe do that but yeah that's well, quite cool it's interesting that it's all quantifiable isn't it like uh, you mentioned the diabetes thing it's something we had in pigeon a couple of weeks ago and like immediately the week after it was followed by being able to diagnose schizophrenia um by listening yeah. uh, to mm-hmm. the voice as well and then uh, you know so many conditions that you can divide by you know just a few seconds of voice and you can quantify what the patterns of the voice, what the rhythms of the, you know, the timbre of the voice and all that equates to because you know what the condition sounds like in a voice. It's, I I do wonder whether the the fact that like um, it's been so hard and that you know, the TechCrunch article actually goes into this, like all of the budding, the budding attempts to um, do AI detected emotion have been so struggling because it's not quantifiable. Because mm-hmm. it, there is so much complexity to how individuals display emotion mm. that you can kind of have a guess, you can you can you can detect, you can deduce, but you'll never be quite on point for how a single person um, does, you know, ex- expresses their own emotion. Yeah, and also culture, accents, language.
1: Mm. You know, the, wouldn't we'll go back to equity and bias. Like, if you wanted to find medical use cases, yeah, people express things. Pretty differently. I'm obviously a very reserved guy, so it's quite difficult with
0: me. One of the things I'm looking forward to speaking to you about, Dom, next time, actually, mm. uh, which I believe is uh, in the new year when we when we talk about AI more generally, is that yeah, I agree, Hugh. Like it's it's hard when ultimately, yes, you can you can deduce to something, but. It's that thing about like fire can't burn itself, a knife can't cut itself. Like how how can we actually truly understand what we are as human? And we, it seems like we're getting far more. I'm anyway thinking more about what it means to be human. The more I think about what is AI actually doing, it's 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 putting into context for me what certain things are to be human just because I'm trying to figure out, well, is AI trying to be human? Is AI And I'm, there's there's more kind of, I guess, quantified on either side there that I'm... Yeah, there's just a lot.
2: No one has accurately managed to develop an AI that can detect what my dog means when it whines, And I'm fairly certain its vocabulary is, like, less than mine. <laughs> um, Surely that's so coming.
0: Surely that's the first coming. First use
1: case for open source emotion AI... Is my dog hungry? <laughs> if
2: you can solve that, I'll be very happy.
0: Right. Our final story that we're going to blast through today. Um, there is a health tech company called Neurovalens, or it's spelled Neurovalens, it might be pronounced Neurovalens or something different, but a Belfast based health tech company specializes in combining neuroscience and tech uh, to tackle a range of global health challenges. But they are delivering electrical stimulation non-invasively to your brain and nervous system in order to improve insomnia. They have just received FDA clearance, meaning that now that essentially means it can be sold directly to people suffering from insomnia And they can sit, it says, while they're watching TV or reading 30 minutes before bed and receive electrical pulses to the head, uh, to help them sleep better. Now, this is obviously fascinating. So I have done a little bit of digging into this, um, had a look at their website. And do you know what? I mean, it's FDA approved. So, you know, you obviously have to prove things. There's a, they've got a tab on their website. And here, by the way, is a bit of advice to any health tech companies or founders or anyone that works at a health tech company listening. They, You go on their website, the second tab after home is a tab called clinical trials. Now, if you want to exude competence and credibility, have a tab that is your first proper tab on your website that says clinical trials because i can guarantee that anybody clinical will click on it and when you do click on it you are met with a load of papers um all about everything that they have done in the insomnia space in amp activated t protein kinase in diabetes and obesity and in, in anxiety like loads and so kudos to neurovalens for uh for a website that directs the clinicians straight to what they're looking for um but yeah had a look at their one of their papers which talks about what they actually do in insomnia and to cut a long story short what their medical device does transdermal so through the skin Um, It aims at the homeostatic nuclei of the brainstem and the hypothalamus. So basically, if my medical school knowledge is still with me and valid, that is all to do with regulating your systems. So the, the, the parts of the brain that regulate or homeostasis, essentially, um, in the brainstem and the hypothalamus. They're going to aim at that. And what they've basically done is they have stimulated, uh, the vestibular system and improved, uh, people's ISI scores, which are insomnia severity index scores. Um, so they did a study, they got a load of people and some of them, they blasted with electrical pulses. Others they didn't, and the ones that got pulses said that they slept better. Um, so to cut long story short, long story short, uh, that that is the new story. Um, so now you can sit with a transdermal electrical pulsating device, and you can have your insomnia a little bit cured. From the sounds of things, don't want to say cured, That's going to might, might land them in trouble. Dom, Hugh, don't know if you've had a look at that. Any thoughts or comments?
1: Like a million so many i don't even know where to begin <laughs> i don't know honestly i have like, brain- like so my brain is literally blown by this because well the first thing when he said they're shooting electricity in the brain to make people go to sleep i was like do you know what i believe you number one and number two is isn't that interesting that we still know nothing about relatively about how our brains actually work you know we we're anesthetizing yeah. people they go to sleep we don't know how that works We don't know how a a halothane works. We've been using it for like 100 years. It's mad. And to go back to your point actually earlier about like can a knife cut itself, like sometimes I think maybe there's some sort of cognitive equivalent. Like you can't see your own eyeball. Is there like a cognitive version of that? Like we can't understand with our thought processes, thought itself. And this is fascinating. Like just shoot some electricity in here and you go to sleep. But then obviously my other part is like clinical evidence, right? So I wanted to go read those papers, but I didn't get a chance. But I agree with you. And you can see the CEO is a doctor, which kind of makes sense, um, that you take this clinical approach, FDA approval, and then actually a lot of the, I need to go back to our original discussion, crazy technology, but actually evidence, it works, people go to sleep, FDA says it's not harmful, which I think is actually what the FDA sure. approval is. It's not harmful as opposed to it mm-hmm. works. But um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating technology and yeah, we'll see, I'm keen to try it, to be honest not that I have problems
2: sleeping. Mm. Uh, well, I do actually, but yeah, don't know all <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know how they how they found it out. Like you know, who decided let's let's just try this. You know, got got, got patient with insomnia. I'll uh, I'll try the electric pulse to the head. You know, how do you decide mm. how much is too much, or whether you start start quite uh, low on the scale? Yeah, apparently, actually, the seer got hit in the head with lightning in a storm,
1: and it cured. No, I'm joking. I have no idea. wouldn't that be be a great story wouldn't that be a great story it would definitely help you sleep (laughs) it would definitely
0: help you sleep
1: and he's still asleep today he went straight to sleep (laughs) (laughs) incredibly effective and he never woke up so they were like well if we could just
0: optimize it yeah well exactly 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 Awesome. Well, guys, thank you. What a lovely ending. Um, This has been the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. We've talked about the news. Um, We've talked a lot about generative AI. Dom, thank you for coming on. Before I let you go, um, in 30 seconds, uh, what is coming up for Tortoise and what are you excited about?
1: Oh, yeah, we're launching our um, proper product in about a month's time. And then we're going to start our phase three trial, Real World Patients, this side of this year, and hoping to roll it out to a whole bunch of hospitals in the next sort of quarter, And then hopefully coming to a clinic near you uh, very, very soon. And in the US, sort of doing the same thing. And I'm super keen to to talk to physicians who want to come and play and talk and chat. So anyone out there who wants to reach out, um, you can
0: sure you can come find me and I'll I'll talk to you. Beautiful. Uh, Dom, thank you, Hugh. Thank you for joining me. Um, We will see you all next week.